tell stories so grand of this vast, timeless land, and they call it Sunday with Mac. Hello, it's uh, Patricia here. I'm ringing from Fiji. Yep. I'm ringing up to tell the Australian taxpayers how much we're very grateful for the vaccines that the Australian government is sending over. In early April this year, we had people coming back into the country from overseas and so COVID came in then and it's really affected the Fiji, the Fijian people. At the moment, there's 406 people in isolation and there's been uh, 434 current cases. Just as of yesterday, 200,000 people had had their first dose of AstraZeneca and most of those doses have come through the Australian government and also through COVAX. So it's been very good. Fiji's population is just less than a million. So there's about at least uh, 300,000 families that are affected by this COVID and they're having... Many of them having trouble finding food and feeding their families. And it's a bit of a crisis over here. So anyway, I just wanted to, through your program, thank the Australian people to tell them where some of their tax money's gone. (laughs) Thank you very much. They're always interested where their tax money's gone, Patricia. (laughs) (laughs) Nice to talk to you, Patricia. Thank you. Australians all know, if you're rich or you ain't got a cracker, they tell stories so grand of this vast, timeless land, and they call it Sunday with Macca. They all call it Sunday with Macca. Yeah, they all call it Sunday with Macca. Get on with it, Macca. I will. Good morning and welcome to the program wherever you are. Lovely to talk to you. You can give us a ring, 1300 700 222. That's what happens. Lots of lovely things this morning. I'll tell you about Kiwikara. You'll find it in your maps, I think. A small Aboriginal community situated in the Pollock Hills in Western Australia. It's on the track, originally graded by Len Bedell, uh, to open up the country around the Blue Streak Rocket Range. It happened. A school there opened in May 88, and Tim O'Keefe was the principal in 1988. He said, Some say being on the edge of the Gibson Desert is isolated. I like to look at it as central. Me too. Wouldn't that be nice to be at Kiwi Kara? Kiwi would be cold. It's cold everywhere this morning. Uh, there's various versions of cold, but it's uh, there's uh, cold weather. Apparently it's winter at the moment. Um, but people are feeling the cold. They're saying it's the coldest winter for a long time. i do not not sure if that's true. What did the Bureau say? Did they say it was going to be a cold winter? I'm not sure. <laughs> 1300 two. Upon hearing your song about city living and missing the bush, Kiss the Earth for Me, I think that was the song, I thought of part of a letter my grandmother wrote to my grandfather while he was working away from home. She said, There's one thing I want to tell you badly, Artie. You must not sleep on a cement floor like that again. Because you must have been sleeping on a cement floor. It is dangerous and injurious to your health. It will be far better to sleep on the lap of our dear old Mother Earth. That was written in 1919. I wish, says Sue, Sue wrote this, we could look after our dear old Mother Earth as my grandparents would have wanted. Well, we can. We all do. I do. I do it. In fact, I've got lovely natives growing in my little 
little patch of earth, and um, I had to pick some because for a birthday this week. Uh, lovely banksias, which my mum planted, and some I planted, and some grevilleas. And that was basically it, grevilleas and banksias. And I don't know what it is, the cold winter brings them out. Lovely colour, lovely pale yellows and a pale green and lovely rich, rich red, almost red. And then there was the, the giant candles. Beautiful. So you just got to do what you can do. Do what you can do. You're not going to change the world, but do what you can do. Um, our number, 1300 What else? Um, Steve McClure says, I recently heard you mention the demise of country newspapers. Well, we were talking about the re- resurgence of them too, Steve. Extremely sad, but a, there is a great weekly paper, he, he says, called the Riverine Grazier, based in Hay. Um, it's 40 years since I lived in Hay, but I subscribe to it and receive it by email every Wednesday and my favourite email every week with a nice cheerio message from the staff. There he says, people of the highest standard uh, work for the Riverine Grazier. My benchmark of any newspaper journalism is that if it's not of the standard of the Riverine Grazier, it doesn't deserve to be published or read. Well, Steve, it probably does. I think they all deserve to be published and read, but I, I get your drift. I don't know where Steve lives, but he gets it sent to him by email, is it? He gets it by email every week, and he loves it. He may have lived there in times gone past. And quickly, just finally, uh, Mark says, um, listen to his show last week, or it's the week before, asking about the quarter windows on Kenworth Trucks. It was a special Kenworth truck at the truck show in Brisbane a couple of weeks ago. These were commonly known as traditional doors. They were uh, an option until 2015, I think. They bought out the new door, now known as the Daylight Door, the Daylight Door, L-I-T-E. I remember well the quarter window on Dad's E-H, used as the demister, something this generation of kids will miss. Great show helps pass the kilometres while travelling, says Mark. Mark, I don't know why they don't have quarter windows in cars. They're the best air conditioner of the lot and, as you said, a demister as well. And we were told, oh, no, 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 they can't. People break in, duh, really. They break in. If they want to break in, they'll break in. Just a nonsense, another cost saver. Things we don't get. Things we don't get. Things we miss. Uh, G'day, this is Macca. Yeah, good morning, Macca. This is Tony Ayling calling you from beautiful Hideaway Bay. I thought you'd left the country. How, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, Tony, Tony's a marine biologist. So, how are you going, Tony? Yeah, great. We've, uh, I should tell you first, we've just had the most amazing sunrise here. We've got a high, high cirrus clouds, and it was just the most brilliant red sunrise here. Very still, no wind, and for us, cold, which is uh, 15 degrees, it was first thing. So, that's pretty cold here. When, uh, what's that old saying? Red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky in the morning, a sailor's warning. <laughs> yes, I think it's just a function of the the cloud, that's all. The cirrus cloud really gives you a beautiful uh, red sunrise. But um, yep. we've just spent a week up north. We've had the most amazing weather window, calm seas, and uh, we took the opportunity to drive back up to where we used to live up at Daintree and do our annual surveys, coral surveys on Snapper Island, which is a 
small island just off the Daintree River, north of Port Douglas there, north yeah. of Cairns. I've heard of Snapper Island. I haven't been there. Tell me more. Yes, well, it's a beautiful little rainforested island just a few miles off the coast. And we first died there and did surveys in 1983. Uh, but the present... Um, bunch of surveys we set up in 1997 so we've been doing them for for oh, 24 25 years now and um, do them every year funded by the marine park authority and australian institute of marine science in townsville yep. so we've been following what's happening to the corals up there over all that time and there's there's constant change is the uh, the message that <laughs> we've found mm -hmm. over all that time. There's just constant changing from floods, cyclones. There's been two major floods where the Daintree River water has swept out and around the island and damaged lots of the corals in shallow water. And uh, there's been three or four quite severe cyclones have affected it and they really smash up the coral. There's also been a bad coral bleaching event a few years ago and about five, six years ago there was a one-year crown of thorns starfish outbreak which damaged the coral. So you can see there's a lot of impacts over that 25 years but um, Recovery it can be very rapid, can be quite slow. That's the strange thing. We've got two sites on the north of the island that were damaged by bleaching and crown of thorns and cyclones over the last five years. And they just have not, they've been so badly damaged, they've not come back at all over the last couple of years. So there's just a sort of an algal bed, really. There's just low seaweeds growing there with the odd coral amongst it but then a site just a, a little bit further along the northern coast has come back really strongly and now has fantastic coral cover so it's not uh, a simple story maker no it never is is it but i think sometimes people want you to believe it's a simple story and this is happening and therefore you know, A plus B equals C, and it's never the story, is it? Is it? It's, it's a bit like the the night parrot was supposed to be disappeared, and it's, and then all of a sudden, when somebody does some work, it, it turns up. So you know, I never know what to believe, but um, I'm always always live in hope that um, you know, things, uh, nature's a, a a strange beast, isn't it? And it has a capacity for healing itself. Uh Resilience is the word that comes to mind. Uh, coral reefs are incredibly resilient. I mean, you just have to think that 14,000 years ago, there was no barrier reef. It was, um, the sea level was 120 metres lower than it is now. And the the reef that we, as we now know, it was just limestone hills out on the coastal plain. So yeah, it's a amazingly resilient. Uh, the other thing, it was, Absolutely fantastic weather up there, Macca. The, mm. the weather was just flat calm all day. It was just really beautiful. The water was mostly pretty clear. One of the strange things about those fringing reefs is that you get, you often get a dirty water layer down at about five metres depth. So you might have 
10 or 12 metres visibility in the shallows. And then when you get down to five metres, you just go into this horrible, dark, one to two metre vis layer. And, and some, some of our transects are down in, in that dirt sometimes, which is not very pleasant. But And then you just stick your head up half a metre and you, you can you can see as far as you want to. Wow, isn't it amazing? I'd, yeah, it's it's a very, it's common on a lot of fringing reefs where you get that um, dirty sort of silty layer down deep. Uh, the other thing was we took the opportunity while we were up there to uh, go and explore the Daintree River, which we haven't done for many years because we used to live on the banks of the river for for over a decade and and spent a lot of time running up and down the river and uh, watching crocodiles and birds and so on. So we took the opportunity to do that uh, one morning and it was just wonderful. We saw eight crocodiles <laughs> and uh, including quite a large one, but also for the first time ever, I saw a crocodile try to take a bird. We were cruising very slowly up one of the little side creeks and there was a great built heron, a very large grey heron. They're about a metre high. Uh, it was flying slowly along in front of us and then perching and waiting till we got close and then flying on again. Uh, they're quite a rare bird, very beautiful bird. And then as I was watching him and actually filming it on, on my GoPro, a crocodile lunged out right out of the water with its mouth open and snapped at this heron, which was perched on a dead tree on the bank. And the heron sort of hurriedly flew away, but then circled right around and came back within range of the croc again. And it launched itself out of the water again at the bird. Wow. I think the, the heron was actually playing with it, actually. <laughs> Um, see, it missed it, of course. Uh, of course, <laughs> and yeah, when you say you you saw eight crocodiles, um, do you when you're out at Snapper Island? I mean, do you see crocodiles out there? Do they get off the coast at all? They do, and it's uh, it's something I don't like to think too much about. <laughs> <laughs> they they have been seen around Snapper Island, and as you know, I've. I've had an encounter with a crocodile on a fringing reef once before. Mm. Uh, we just love uh, doing our snapper surveys. It's a beautiful island with uh, lovely coral rubble beaches and uh, lush rainforest, lots of orchids, lots of flowering plants. It's just a beautiful place that we love to go to. So uh, I'm going to I'm going to come up there. Um, as soon as I can, and uh, hang around with you for a week or so. That'd be lovely. I mean, you just you whet everybody's appetite, uh, Tony. Um, <laughs> when you when you talk uh, the way you do, it's um, yeah, just fantastic. Yeah, well, there's some lovely fringing reefs off here where we are at Hideaway too. We've uh, been exploring some of them lately. Some of them have come back pretty well after Cyclone Debbie, but others are still. Um, Pretty poor condition. So, so and crocodiles—they're they're bits of seafarers. They can go out to sea a fair way. Oh yes, they uh, can go hundreds of miles out to sea. Really? There have been, there's been records of them found on uh, reefs and islands 
hundreds of miles from the mainland. But uh, on the Great Barrier Reef, as you go further north especially, then they're sort of up to 50 miles off the coast on some of the outer reefs they've been seen where you've got, you know, <laughs> crystal clear water and uh, and a, oh, a four-metre crocodile swimming past and things like that. So. Uh, I think you've spoiled me morning now. Um, <laughs> the, uh, what do they call it? My mate calls them leather undertakers. That's right. Um, <laughs> dear, oh dear. Yes, they're totally amazing animals. I've got a bit of a love-hate relationship with them, Maka. Well, you would after your experience with them. Mm. Tony Yelling, great to talk to you. How's uh, Zenica? Uh, she's having a lot of fun in Broome. I should also quickly say that we're now grandparents. Our daughter, Bliss, who's in Barcelona in Spain, has had a um, baby boy. So There you go. I was just, I was just thinking, because, um, ladies and gentlemen, Tony, Tony's a marine biologist, Tony Ailing, and his daughter, uh, Zenica, worked here at the ABC for a while. Now she's in Broome. Um, uh, she's working here in Sydney with... Uh, ABC Sydney, and um, we, you know, we know we great. We always used to bump into one another in the lift and stuff. Uh, Tony and I was thinking, because Zenica is in the news, Astro Zenica. What what does Zenica? How did you name a Zenica? What's the deal there? What's Zenica? Oh, it's actually it's uh, the generic name of a butterfly. There you go. (laughs) Zenica with an X. That is with an X. Yes, there you go. And the other one's with a Z. Is it? Uh, yes. yes. <laughs> Tony, great to talk to you, mate. Yes, Maka. I'll see you see up you there. Later. I'll see you up there. We we hope so. Yeah, I'm I'm coming. I'm coming. You're welcome. Okay, with me odd socks, I'm coming. Good. See ya. Bye, Maka. Uh, lots of things to share with you. On Saturday, the 26th of June, the Professional Association of Learning Support, that's PALS, Professional Association of Learning Support, will be celebrating their 25th birthday. The association was founded by Anne Kennedy, who at the time was working as a consultant with the Department of Education, says, who sent this to me, Kel? It was um, Annette Guterres. Uh Anne Kennedy and other teachers realised that teachers who worked in the area of learning difficulties needed a professional association to share ideas and resources, provide support and professional development. They held their first meeting at Leichhardt Primary on June the 26th, 1991, and teachers from all three systems attended. Over the last quarter of a century, PALS, this is Professional Association of Learning Support, has been there representing teachers in a learning support role and providing professional development opportunities. They will be celebrating their birthday with a luncheon. Invitees include past presidents and Anne Kennedy Award winners and members, says Anne Guterres. There you go. Uh, g'day, this is Macca. G'day, Macca. This is Sylvester Mooney calling from Dublin in Ireland. Sylvester Mooney, is it? Yeah, that's correct, Macca. Yeah. I'm, uh, the, re- the reason I, sent, uh, I got in touch was I have the opportunity to see the ABC News on uh, the internet, on the YouTube channel, and I just saw the dreadful um, floods which occurred in Traralgon. And a good mate of mine from when we were in elementary school, Paul Coughlin, he's a GP who's based out there with his wife, Jean, and uh, I just thought I'd uh, send send them a message to say we're thinking about them. 
and uh, because it, it looked pretty serious from what we saw on the on the ABC news that we were able to look at. Oh, they're ter- and, uh, they're terrible. Yeah, they were they were. Sylvester, it's nice to talk to you. They they were terrible, and and of course it's winter and floods are bad any time. But in the winter it's cold and miserable and terrible winds and trees down and all the sorts of things. And probably some people are still without power, so it's um, it's uh, it's a lousy time. Yes, yeah. Well, we we get the occasional uh, severe storm here in 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 uh, Ireland. Uh, you know, any time between October and March, April, and uh, it it can really cause a lot of misery for people. And uh, we were just, I was just uh, anxious to let them know that we're we're thinking of them. We have lots of we have lots of connections with Australia. My wife uh, Sheila has the um, second cousin Bob, uh, married to Deirdre, Bob and Deirdre Fitchu. They're based in Brisbane, and uh, we we we've uh, we've been over there on several occasions and had wonderful trips we had uh, to, to Australia and um, we we spent a lovely time as well with Paul and Jean a couple of years ago 2019 uh, in fact it was just before the fires uh, in that part of Victoria and um, we, do, we were able to go down to the, watch the penguin parade and so forth it was a fantastic couple of days that we had with them and uh, we'd, we'd already been up in Brisbane with uh, Sheila's cousins and uh, we also we're also good mates with um, their daughter Jen and Ashton, Ashton Berry. Uh, their Ashton was out in the Seychelles. He's an environmental scientist, and uh, we visited them out in the Seychelles. And we hope to go again next year uh, when hopefully Australia is open for visitors and this dreadful coronavirus is settling down. Oh, it's going to, I was going uh, to ask you about that because uh, you're a doctor and your mates are... How come you didn't come to Australia when... Um, what's his, what's uh, your other... Uh, doctor, Paul, do, Dr. Paul, Paul Co- Coughlin. Well, I, very, I very nearly did. Uh, I very nearly did because Paul uh, rang me. Uh, I had just set up and practiced myself here in Dublin and uh, I'd entered into a, a rental contract uh, only a couple of months, and he said, "Look, I need a partner. Any chance? Any chance you can come out?" And I said, "I'm sorry, I'm stuck with a lease." <laughs> so unfortunately, uh, as I say, because it was about that was about 1992, and I I didn't get out to Australia for the first time until 1996, and when I saw what I missed, oh dear! But there you go. It's, <laughs> it's second home for myself and Sheila at this stage because we we've had wonderful holidays there. I'm talking to Sylvester Mooney, Dr. Sylvester uh, uh, Mooney in uh, in Dublin. Now, look, it's nice to have you on the line. I always like um, calls from overseas. We don't get as many calls from overseas now because a lot of Australians would ring us from time to time overseas, but many of them have come home now, as a lot of people have done all over sure. the world. There's a new strain, of course, here in Australia, which, um, and we only have, you know, quite a, a small number of cases, but I uh, heard something about England's got this new variety, which is quite in, infectious. Um, what's your take on yes. What's your take, Sylvester, on all this? And is it well, is that happening in Dublin, it, in Ireland? And it, well, they're making great efforts. It, the, the particular strain you're referring to is called the Delta strain, which originated in the Indian subcontinent. And what they're finding in the UK, where they've They've got huge numbers of the population vaccinated now. That uh, even with one shot, it mitigates the severity of the disease. This the, the coronavirus is just, from what I've seen, is just a very, very unpredictable 
illness. Uh, it's impossible to predict. And in fact, the saddest aspect of it was that in Ireland, the youngest person who died from it, to my knowledge, was only aged 17. So you just cannot predict with it. And I, the vaccine, uh, I've, I've a background as well in, in molecular biology. And I would have to say that the, the, the vaccine technology is just fantastic. It's amazing what they have been able to do. And, it, and, and because it's so specific, it works really well. And in the context of the population, it, you know, it's, it's really, really safe. And, and serious side effects are really, really, really very, very rare. And all I can say is uh, to your fellow Australians to go out and get the vaccine because that's the only way this wretched thing is going to be beaten. Uh, and, but the other thing for, for lay people like uh, myself is that it, this seems to change. We seem to have a new story every second or third week or something, don't you? This is the whole thing with the virus, I suppose, and we've just got to be reactive to that. And I, I don't know where we'd be without, uh, as you um Talk about the um, you know, the scientific way we approach making vaccines. Now I don't know where we'd be without that. Absolutely, and in fact, you know, up to, up to this, up, up to the development of this type of genetic technology, uh, vaccines where there was an element of hit and miss about them, but because they're using the genetic approach, it gives you a very specific uh, vaccine response, which means that the virus, although it is changing and it, it's, you know, mutating and changing all the time, but it has to, you've got to think that the, the, the we've, we've, I'm sure your listeners are, are, are aware of the spike protein, and that is what latches on to the little cells and the lining of the nasal passage. And that can't change too much because, it, it, you know, the virus will, will try different combinations, but only some of them will work. But while that is the case, unless it undergoes a major, major change, the vaccine that they have at the moment, uh, you know, would have a mitigating, at, at, at best, will prevent it, but at minimum would have a mitigating effect in terms of the severity of the disease. And sadly, in Ireland alone, we've had uh, close to 5,000 people dying from this. So it's been a very tough 15 months for people here. Uh, between losing loved ones and then the whole thing of the restrictions, we we're just coming. We're not fully out of a, a lockdown, which lasted from uh, the 31st of December, uh, yeah. and it's only beginning to come. We're we're not allowed to fly out of the country effectively, except for specific circumstances, bereavements and so forth. And uh, so it's it's really done a huge amount of um, you know it's done a huge amount of of misery in terms of obviously the bereavements that people have suffered and also, of course, the economic damage of, of uh, what has happened with the lockdown. Yeah, and do you think we'll need another vaccine if they, they keep mutating? I mean, if you get, you know, more more brands like the the Delta brand and things like that, I mean, will that need to keep happening like happened with the flu? You know, every when we used to get the flu, we don't get the flu anymore, and I think that's probably because people aren't travelling anymore. Um, will, uh, well, partly par- 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 that, but also because... The, the crucial thing in terms of what they call the public health measures are wearing face masks and then keeping a social distance of two metres mm. and then washing hands and those simple expedients, those yeah. simple things to do make a huge difference in terms of not just the coronavirus but other respiratory viruses. And that's why 
uh, you've probably had, we, we've had very little flu in Ireland in the winter season from October through to March. And you can expect it probably the same in Australia if people follow through uh, with, with those similar simple measures. It prevents, uh, it prevents the spread of these respiratory viruses. But as regards developing further vaccines, depending on what the, what the virus does, and I, there is a certain amount of always having to play catch up with this, but depending on what the virus does, uh, they, they will be able to do the genetic analysis and will be able to uh, prepare a, a vaccine. And because they've done it now, mm. uh, if you like, the recipe is there and it, it'll be that bit easier and quicker to be able to, to do that. The main thing is the logistics of producing enough vaccine when it's required for vaccinating uh, the, you know, the sections of the public who may be particularly affected by it. But I, the likelihood is this wretched thing is going to be around for quite a while, yeah. just as the flu was from 1918. Um, I'm talking to Dr. Sylvester Mooney. Uh, he's in Dublin. And I'll let you go in a minute. Did you say you've had a six-month lockdown there in, in Ireland? And, and how do you deal with your patients? Yes. Uh, what, well, I'll tell you, the, the, I, I was in a bricks and mortar clinic myself until five years ago, and then myself and three other uh, techie chaps developed software for a telemedicine service. So we give video consultations to patients, and uh, that was kind of ticking over until the pandemic started. Yeah. And of course, because of the because of the infectivity of the coronavirus. The, the problem was pr- trying to provide a, 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 some sort of a service because overnight general physical general practices had to literally shut their doors. Mm. And uh, many doctors were relying on just a telephone consultation. But with our technology, it, it enabled them to as well to see the patient. And when you can see the patient, you know the song, the words of the song, a picture paints a thousand words. Exactly. And it tells you, it tells you so much more about a patient in terms of your assessing them, you know, but you're, you're able to take the history from them. You're even able to do maybe a limited physical examination in terms of looking at how they are and so on. And, so and you forth. can tell their body so language that, too, can't you? Yeah. I beg your pardon. You can tell their body language too, I suppose, when you look at absolutely, them. absolutely, yeah, yeah. It, 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 you know, it allows you to provide uh, a much, a much greater level of service to patients when you're stuck like that. So, you know, hopefully, as I say, uh, it, it, it's now become accepted and, uh, you know, it, it, as a part of of practice. And once all of this hullabaloo over coronavirus finally settles. When it finally settles, I would reckon it'll be part and parcel of one of the ways. It will never replace, it can never replace the bricks and mortar. You'll always have a need for that. But quite a number of medical problems in general practice can certainly be initially assessed, if not sorted out, using telemedicine. And that certainly has been our experience here in Ireland. Dr. Sylvester Mooney, uh, great to talk to you and thanks for your chat. And um, we'll all say good day to um, what, uh, Dr. Paul and Jean Coughlin, is it, based in Traralgon? Dr. Paul and Jean, Dr. Paul and Jean Coughlin in Traralgon. <laughs> and I, the one final thing I have to say, I'd be shot if I didn't. I have two first cousins, Mary and Jim Baxter in Brisbane and Ju, uh, Julia and Paul Baxter, who are based over in uh, Darwin. 
and uh, my 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 niece Sheila, who's married to Mick, and they're based in Brisbane. They're only uh, they're only there in the last number of years. So we've lots of connections, as you can gather, with Australia from what I said. But uh, which is why, as I say, it's a home from home for us when we whenever we can get there. Good on you, Dr. Sylvester, and let's hope we can all travel to Dublin, Ireland, and you can travel to Australia again sometime soon. Let's hope anyway. Absolutely, Matthew. Thanks very much indeed. It's a Take pleasure. care. Good on you. Bye. Bill's near Derby, I think. Is that right, Bill? Yeah, I am. Camping near Derby, about 60 kilometres south of Derby. I've been cycling from Narbury, New South Wales, for Huntington's disease. I've cycled about 4,300 so far. All right. I'm, uh, just, I'm just getting used to your accent and the phone's a bit scratchy. Bill, you're sc- Scottish um, from somewhere back in your past. Is that right? Yeah, that's uh, right. Aberdeen. Uh, and you're Aberdeen. Aberdeen. We've got an Aberdeen here in Australia. It's obviously named after Aberdeen. You're, <laughs> you're cycling for Huntington's disease. Is that, and you're near Derby in, uh, in Western Australia. From where? Uh, I'm actually from Wollongong, but I started in Narrabri. Narrabri. Okay, yep. Yeah, I've been, I've been living in Wollongong for the last 20 years. And why did you want to do this, Bill? Uh, a couple of reasons, Mark. I, I, in the year 2000, I rode from the Blue Mountains to Broome, right? Uh, and this year, I decided to ride from, uh, well, New South Wales to Broome. And I have a friend. Lynn Elliott, who had Huntington's disease five years ago. And what is what? What's tell us about Huntington's disease? What is that? How does that manifest? It's a nasty disease. It hits your nervous system, and um, so similar to Parkinson's, she was initially diagnosed as Parkinson's, but I think it's worse than Parkinson's because um, she loses her voice. She's a very bright woman, but now she's lost her voice to some extent. She's actually getting speech therapy um, and it helps her, but it's still scratchy, her voice. And also she has sudden movements that she can't, you know, just jacks up arms and legs. And sometimes she's fallen out of bed in the middle of the night just because she's jacked, you know, at her movement. So it's not a very nice disease. No. And, uh, so how long have you been on the road for, Bill? Been on the road for two months. Two yeah, months, so. and and how is it? You, you're a you're obviously uh, been a cyclist. You didn't just hop on the bike and say, "I'm going to go." Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm 70 years old, uh-huh. so, and uh, I cycle on Wollongong four times a week. So um, I'm pretty fit. But I've, so I've what? Got, I've got a lot fitter. So, <laughs> yeah. so what do you see? Do you stay in motels or do you sleep by the road or what do you do? Uh, Sleep by the road, yeah. yeah. Uh, stayed, uh, the, the whole gamut, you know. I stayed in caravan parks, I stayed in motels, but uh, most of the time it's in rest areas uh-huh. uh, at the side of the road. Uh, camping, so we see the stars at night, and uh, it's, uh, it's quite it's quite spectacular, really. Are, uh, are you I'll, are you on your own, or I've got a support. Uh, my wife's supporting me, Erica, and uh, Pauline. A friend of ours joined us recently, so I've got two supporters now. So, uh, what what do you see on the road, Billy? Uh, you've you've travelled right across a couple of states, two or three states. What do you what are you seeing out there? Lots of people on the road. Oh, 
Maka, the caravans. I've never seen so many caravans in my life. There's just thousands of caravans. They're <laughs> the a, most dangerous, dangerous thing for me, is these caravans going to whizzing back. It's a plague. It's a plague, yeah. <laughs> no doubt about it. It's a huge plague. It's a plague. So where are you heading to? Uh, where are you? What you Narrabri to where? Where's your Where's your final destination? Broome. Broome. I'll be there. I'll be there in a couple of days. I'll so. be there. I'll be there soon in Broome. How good! Uh, watch out for Crocs. Um, <laughs> yeah, I will. I uh, will. Yeah, and listen. It's it's uh, what I wanted to tell you, mate. Before you. Um, cycle off. It's uh, tart. It's Tartan Day, I think, next Saturday in South Australia. Is it? I won't be there. <laughs> no, I know, but actually, there's um, there's also Tartan Day. What does that mean? Well, you wear your tartan. They have any? They're having a concert, of course, and they have you know uh, Highland dancing and pipe bands and stuff like that, and country dancing. And they actually they're going to try and catch a, a fresh uh, haggis for the occasion. Wow. That would be interesting. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I've been to Bundanoon. Sometimes Bundanoon has uh, a, a Scottish, a Highland gathering. Well, you, you should, you should wear a yeah, you should wear a tartan when you're cycling to bro- cycle in the broom. I mean, yeah. Probably... I haven't got tartan with me. <laughs> <I was> up... <laughs> you keep in got... t- you keep in touch, Bill, and have a um, have a, a beer for me on the beach at Broom, okay? Okay, Barker. Thanks good, for talking. Good on you, Bill. See you, mate. See you, mate. Bye. Bye. Morning, Mac. It's Noel Gertz calling. Good day, Noel. How are you today? Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, Mac, I'm heading uh, up the Bruce Highway from Townsville this morning, and I got to a little place halfway between Ingham and Townsville called Rolling Stone, and I thought I'd give you a call about the Lotus people from the Valley of Lagoons. My father was born there, and I'm a traditional owner from the, the Googlebarden people. There you go. There you go. Um, yeah, they've been they've been in the steps that little tour I talked about. They've been in the steps of Ludwig Leichhardt. That's correct. He passed through there, and yeah. um, there's stories from our old people about the times he went through. But the the Valley of Lagoons itself has been formed because of a volcanic um, set of rocks that go from the west to the east, and they form a temporary dam over the Burdekin River each flood time, and it backs up and Lots of lagoons and lakes, and it's full of uh, water lilies and ducks and fish and wildlife, so hence the name, yeah. Valley of Lagoons. It sounds like a lovely place, uh, Noel. You grew up there? I, I spent a lot of my younger days there. I'm actually coming from the, I grew up in the Atherton Tablelands, and that's where I'm heading now. Uh-huh. But my dad and my grandmother and a lot of old, my older people come from there, and that's the home of the Googlebarden people. So we occupy that. You know, traditional links to that area of the land way back. Yes, it was. Uh, see, it would be instructive to go back. Uh, that was a little piece I found in a in a in a little booklet, really. Um, I, and it was um, part of because um, Leichhardt and his mate Gilbert were great uh, diary writers. They wrote lots of things down, which in some ways is the only record. But this is the record of. When Gilbert was there, I think Leichhardt was off doing something on his peregrinations around the place, and they, they were at the camp, and the Aboriginal people arrived on one side of the stream, and I can only imagine how beautiful it must have been because I played that song um, that Slim Dusty had written um, as Leichhardt saw it then. Um, you know, oh, to go back and see that as Leichhardt saw it then, there was your um, 
people would have seen it all the time. But anyway, the Aboriginal people arrived on one side of the stream and um, Gilbert was on the other side and they sort of gestured to one another and then they introduced one another. They couldn't understand one another, but just to go back there, Noel, and, and be part of that, uh, just amazing. Just absolutely amazing, eh? Yes, it certainly is. It's uh, you know, uniquely um, beautiful area because of the the water flow. The, it's the headwaters of the Burdekin River there, but there's a lot of underground streams that feed the Burdekin, and um, they, you know, they are, each year after the floods, the place the place is just teem with wildlife and fish, and you can understand why wild people would have spent a lot of their time there, not necessarily had to move about the country. Mm. Oh, yeah. And and when you read things like that, it, it, uh, I thought, well, wouldn't it be go, good to go if, try and find Leichhardt's diaries and what he said when the, the early explorers, because they had a, as a written record of, of their, any, their impressions, not the only impressions, because as you know, two people can look at the same thing and have a completely different idea of what was happening. But to go back and get some idea, you know, when you read ex- explorers' notebooks and stuff like that. But apparently, uh, Gilbert was um, quite you know, used to write lots of things down, and and Leichhardt kept his own diary. Would have been great. I'm, I'm going to try and see where I can find those. Maybe they're in the National Library or something like that, or maybe there's been some books published. Yes, um, there's a lot of stories and a lot of history written, both uh, our people's history and. Uh, European history there, and Dalrymple was one of the very first surveyors that came there and laid out all the, um, what we now know as the cattle stations, but the Valley of Lagoons was one of the very largest ones early, and then it's been split up into blocks since then, but that's the way the whole sort of um, agricultural industries um, progressed from the early days when Leichhardt, and then obviously Dalrymple came through and, um, you know, as a surveyor. Uh-huh. Noel, you're on the road this morning on the on the yes. Bruce on the Bruce Highway. When where you're heading for? Where? I'm heading to Athen Tablelands today to go through Melanda where I grew up. But I spent a lot of my early days. My dad and mum used to take me out there every holidays, and I had a great grandfather and relations who worked on the station for years. And then in the 70s, when uh, you know employment was no longer viable, and stations all had to move into the Athen Tablelands and Townsville, etc. But I'm going back to my home town where I grew up in Melanda, and then I'm heading up to Cooktown tomorrow for work. What do you do? I uh, train employment. I uh, train young people into for training for employment in the sort of the mining, the mining, and the civil, but not limited to that. So we're heading up to Cooktown. Got a meeting with some people from Hopewell tomorrow. Uh, it's always nice. Well, I think it's nice to be on the road. I suppose that's only because I haven't been on the road for ages, Noel. Um, but it's not. Nice to get around this great country, especially around Queensland and yeah, wide open spaces. It's it's just nice to get out of the city, Noel. Yeah, okay then, Mac. I'll let you get going. You got a busy morning, but I just thought I'd give you a quick call. Coincidentally, I'm pulled up at a little place called. Uh, um, I'm just in land. I'm about 120 k's as crow flies directly. Uh, I'd say I'd say west of the Valley of Lagoons now, Rolling Stone. So I'm just oh. pulled up and. Or give you a quick call. Oh, to be at Rolling Stone, mate. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, yeah, I'll meet you sometime, Noel. Where, where's where? Where do you live? I live in Townsville, Macca. Yeah. Oh, oh, we sh- we were down on the on the um, strand there a couple of years ago. We'll have to come back. It's great down there. Love it. Right, then. Good on you, Noel.
Look forward. Catch you then. Thanks you, for mate. the opportunity. That's a pleasure, mate. Bye. Ali's in Huonden. Morning, Ali. Good morning, Maka. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. We're um, in Huonden after doing um, a show last night, Margaret Fulton the Musical. We're on the road again trying to uh, <laughs> trying to keep up with the game and dodge uh, lockdowns, etc. and uh, heading towards Charters Towers for a show today. Uh, it's Ali Hope, is it? Oh, no, we'll be, we'll be right while we're in Queensland. It's... Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just heading down south in the next few weeks. It could be a worry, but you know we're lucky. We've so far we've done South Australia. We've been over to WA. We just drove back across the Nullarbor. That was fantastic, and uh, living the dream. We really are. Uh, and how's the musical going? Oh, it's fantastic. Everybody used to think Margaret Fulton was just a cook, but she was much more. She was a very fascinating woman, lived a very, very full life. So, yeah, look, the musical's going really well. It's scheduled for about 83 shows this year. We're coming down to – we're supposed to be coming down to Glen Street. We Hopefully you can come and see us. I will. I'll, I'll, I'll do that for sure. Is a lot of, lot of music in it or is it, you know, what's the story, telling the story? I suppose it's a bit inspirational for people who sit in the audience and is that what it's – It uh, is. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's it's a bit of everything. It's all the people that came through Margaret's life from the time she was, um, you know, moved out from Scotland when she was like three years old, and and ended up in the rocks, living next door to a lady of the night, and working in a nuts and bolts factory when she thought she was going to be a cabaret dancer or something. So all these interesting folks come through her life through song, dance, and theatre, and it is just fantastic. It runs flat out for eighty minutes. Got a brilliant cast, and yeah, look, people are loving it, and it was. A Real hit last night here in Huendon. Bit cold this morning. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it, yeah, it's winter. So you're Ali Pope. How many people in the in the cast, Ali? Well, the cast the cast is six, and the crew is four. And my crew are on the road now. Actually, they're driving the truck over to um, to Charters Towers. Hi, crew. They'll be listening. <laughs> and um, and yeah, and the others, the six ensemble um, cast are mixed up. Um, Margaret Fulton and um, five five others that play a various assortment of roles through her life. It's a really, really fun show, but it's not all like, you know, froth and bubble. She had a lot of problems. She had, you know, bad business ventures, bad men, all that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I tell you what I keep meaning to tell you every time I call. Um, my husband's family used to be in racehorsing and they had Galilee and Zima. And I thought you'd be interested because you like – I know you're into the um, the horses. Yeah, well, I like yeah, I like following the horse. I don't do a lot of uh, following. I don't get to the races very much. But no, Zayama, that was uh, Bart trained that, didn't he, in Galilee? Yeah, yeah. All, all their um, horses were trained by Bart. But yeah, um, yeah Galilee, fantastic. He, he always used to say in later times when he did an interview, "Oh, it's, this is a pretty good horse," but. You know, it's no Galilee. That was always the benchmark horse. <laughs> so yeah, it must have been it, doing something. It, it was, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was top horse, top horse. So, Ali, it's pretty adventurous to take a musical on the road, but I suppose if, yeah, it's a reasonably small cast and crew, which you've got to have, I suppose, and it's, yeah, I mean, it's... It's tough. It's tough because, you know, you've got 10 people on the road you've got to look after. Yeah. It's like a truck and two cars and, 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 you know, and there's always the the threat that, you know, there's something, another outbreak will happen and we'll be, you know, that, that whole dilemma. So we sort of just do our best. And and so far we've been really fortunate, but um, the drive back was only for, you know, the, the truck and myself and my husband and, and across the Nullarbor and it was brilliant. Oh, it's such a great drive. So interesting. Have you done it? 
Yeah, I have. I have a couple of times, and uh, it's um. it's it's just well, it is. It's an amazing thing. Um, but I think more and more Australians have done it now. In the last year, they've been on the road, so you've probably yeah. seen that oh. as you travel around. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of people on the road. Um, I've never seen so many caravans. Usually, um, we overtake two or three on each leg, or, you know, on each drive. But um, it's more like twenty every time now. Yes, <laughs> but I know. That's great. Everybody's seen the beautiful country. That's a good thing. Yeah, I'll say. Well, good luck with uh, Margaret Fulton the musical. Where are you off to tonight? Or today's Charters Towers. Uh huh. Good on you. Yeah, um... and then down to then down to Capella, onto Gladstone, Rockhampton, and Mackay, and so on. So we're in still in Queensland for a, you know about two more weeks before we have to head down into Goulburn and, and see what happens in Sydney after that. But, um, yeah, hope to see you there. Yeah. Let me know if you're I'll, coming. That'd be great. I'll see you there at Glen Street. Good on you, Ali. Thanks, Macca. Have see, a great day. See you. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.